When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Outward for September 2022. I'm Christina Cotarucci, a senior writer at Slate. And I'm Jules Gill-Peterson, your co-hostess with The Most Us. And this month, while our very much in-demand Brian is out writing his book, can you believe that? He's going to be an author. Uh, We have a very special guest host, our guest of honor will be familiar to the old outward heads those of you who were listening to us from the very beginning he was one of our founding co-hosts the brilliant the beautiful brandon tensley brandon welcome home hello there's no place like home there's no place like home which will be very relevant to our conversation (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah good call forward um so brandon you know we've almost just about forgiven you for leaving us um what have you been up to i just hit my three-year anniversary at cnn uh i was on the politics team now i'm on the race and equality team um and so covering the intersection of culture identity and politics and i just want to plug your amazing newsletter which i open every week even if i don't have time to read it i click i click it open because i know that helps but most of the time, I put it at the very top of my reading list because I love the way you bring in queerness and often pop culture into every conversation about the news and politics. And um, I always want to hear what you have to say. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. I, yeah, I fight for those uh, the queer stories in there. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for being with us. So listeners, you know, right, that this is a show for everyone. Um, And that means it's a show for you, whether you're sportif or more of a sporty spice, because those are the two categories, right? Um, So duh, this month, we're talking about sports in a gay way, of course. So we do have a little bit of an angle. Um, We're going to be digging into two really fabulous entries from the, the wide world of streaming right now. So first, uh, Christina Brandon and I will chat about A League of Their Own, the Amazon Prime series that came out last month, starring just an incredible ensemble cast, a show that tells the story of queer women, transmasculine people, shooting their shot to play ostensibly women's baseball uh, in the 1940s. And then we'll sit down with the director and producer of Stay On Board, The Leo Baker Story, a really wonderful documentary streaming on Netflix that tells the story of professional skateboarding star Leo Baker and his struggle to figure out how to make room for himself as a queer and trans pro athlete. So clearly, grab a towel and a water bottle because, (laughs) honey, we're going to break a sweat. (laughs) But first, as is our gay custom, it is time for Pride and Provocation. So, uh, Christina, what have you got for us? 
Oh, man. I'm provoked this month. I tried to avoid this provocation bait, but, you know, I'm only human. Um, So y'all might have noticed that Jonathan Van Ness and Anthony, whatever his last name is, um, from Queer Eye, this week both tweeted these seemingly lovey-dovey photos of themselves. And the gist of the captions was... You know, after all these years, we're finally together. We're so happy. We're feeling so supported and loved. More tomorrow, you know, rainbow emoji. So it was clear to a great many of us that this was some sort of a teaser, like publicity stunt for a product that they would be launching together or maybe a podcast or something. So especially for those of us who were still scarred by the fact that Jonathan Van Ness came out as non-binary as a promotion for their nail polish line uh, with Essie, I believe, like gender neutral nail polish, because as we all know, nail polish in its traditional form is so gender exclusive. You know, non-binary people can't use regular nail polish. Anyway, those of us who remember that fateful promotion were like, oh, God, here comes another product. But of course, the Pollyannas out there in the real world were responding to these posts like, congratulations cuties oh my god it's so sweet so happy for you and then there was a strain of response that was more like wait a minute isn't jonathan married already so how can they be with antony and in response to that line of skepticism there were a whole bunch of credulous lgbtqs who were chiming in to say you know, people can be non-monogamous or like direct quote from one tweet. Relationships can look like a lot of different things. Polyamory or other forms of non-monogamy are awesome for a lot of people. And I just want to say, come on, folks with an X. We don't have to fall for every stupid commercial ploy that comes across our feeds just because it's family. And Also, perhaps more importantly, not everything has to be an earnest teaching moment about, you know, the diversity of queer relationships. I found this so cringe, it made me embarrassed to be queer. And then sure enough, the next day, the product was announced. Um, It's pet food mix-ins. Not pet food, mind you. Mix-ins. So, like... What's a mix-in? Mix-in. You mix it into your pet's food to make it taste better? I don't know. As if regular pet food is too bland for the pampered pet. Yeah, it's delicious. Yeah. So, you know, why are we like this? (laughs) I don't know. Yeah, I feel like we should know better. How about you, Brandon? How are you feeling this month? I am feeling pride this month. It's funny. I was actually going to be provoked um, because I remember back when I would co-host, like I was always feeling pride and always made... Always made you and Brian come across as like, you know, the the downers. <laughs> well, I clearly um, played into that stereotype. <laughs> I know when I saw you're going to be provoked, I was like, wow, I can be my true self. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, so last week, um, I went to my first NLGJA uh, LGBTQ journalist uh, conference uh, in Chicago. Oh, cool! Yes. And I, yeah, like. I hadn't been before. I just had a great time. I got to meet, um, obviously, a lot of queer journalists, but also a lot of queer colleagues, Ooh. like people I didn't know were queer oh, at CNN. Wow. Um, yeah, especially at the at the different bureaus um, in Atlanta, in New York. 
so I just had a great time. And I remember I fell in love with this. Um, uh, she's an investigative reporter at the Dallas Morning News. And uh, her name is Lauren uh, McGoffey. She covers gender, sexuality, politics in Texas. And she just killed this panel uh, that she was on uh, that was talking about post-Roe um, and sort of how the legal reasoning um, in that decision, how that affects um, a variety of different rights. Um, but you know how sometimes you, you watch a panel and... Like, everybody's great. Everybody's nice. Uh, but, like, a star emerges. <laughs> yes. Somebody who just steals the show. Yeah. And it was exactly like that. And I remember afterward, I, like, went up to her and I was like, you're amazing. So I came away really, really, really inspired. Like, I feel like a lot of people go to conferences and, understandably, just come away feeling exhausted. Um, and I was tired uh, by the time I caught my, like, you know, 7 a.m. flight. But... um I I just felt rejuvenated at the same time. And the last night that I was there, I uh, got to go out in Boys Town, also known as North Halstead. It was great. So now I'm I'm, you know, dying to hit the conference circuit again <laughs> next year. Oh, <laughs> I'm so happy for you, Brandon. I was actually at the 2019 Negligee mm. conference. This is what June taught me how you oh, pronounce that. Negligee. NLGJA Negligee. <sighs> Uh, I love it. Um, Brian and I were on a panel about podcasts together. And yeah, there's just something about being surrounded by people. Well, A, by queers and B, by people who are like actually really excited about doing better at their jobs. Um, mm-hmm. it, I loved it. I loved it. It was real like, you know, kid who sits in the front of the classroom energy. <laughs> a thousand percent. What's up with you? I'm a bit of a reach this month. Um, And, you know, there were a lot of other contenders for my feelings, but I just have to do this because, you know, as people may or may not know, I am a literal product of the British Empire. Um, You know, half Mm. my family is from India. Um, I was born in Canada. And so, okay, let's just say it. Her Majesty died. Okay, I'm not a monarchist, never have been, not a fan of empire. And I just want to say I'm provoked in general by anyone who just suddenly decided this week that they actually really love the British Empire, (laughs) that they really love the House of Windsor, that they really love the monarchy. And here's, and if you're being like, okay, well, that's fine, honey, but that isn't gay. Yes, it is. Because my provocation Mm -hmm. is you're a fan of the wrong queen. Okay? That was not your queen. (laughs) And if you want to understand, I mean, she was my queen. I've been forced to swear oaths to her and all sorts of other unspeakable acts up, up north. And, you know, I just have to say, you get very little in return, and you have to live with the fact that, you know, she is the, she was the legal and literal symbolic head of the thing that went around the world and just did unspeakable uh, damage through colonialism, you know, benefiting from the transatlantic slave trade. I mean, just like, you know, keeping all the diamonds? I mean, come on. What more yeah, villainry really do we need? Queens are people <laughs> who carry themselves in a legendary manner, who snatch trophies, who appear on stage, and who own the street, okay? So enough said. From now on, that one queen is gone, right? So now you have no excuse anymore. No one likes a king, okay? We like short kings. We don't like literal kings. And so I'm just going to leave it there. Let's do a total global reset and fixate on proper, proper queendom from now on. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. 
Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. On Death, Sex, and Money, we feature interviews with you, our community of listeners, getting honest about uncomfortable things. I developed an illness where it isn't safe for me to drive. A friend once said to me, sex is like air. You don't think about it until you're not getting enough. This is a similar sort of thing if you just replace sex with driving. Listen to Death, Sex, and Money wherever you get podcasts. Our first topic this month is A League of Their Own, an Amazon Prime series that came out last month. If you're listening to this podcast, I'm sure you have some kind of feeling about it or you're at least aware that it exists. So I don't know about you all, but I was... I have to say, and, you know, don't revoke my queer card here. I was tempted to skip this series. Then three things happened. One was that multiple friends of mine who are usually like just total snarky bitches were posting these just earnest clips of the show on Instagram, not with no comment or commentary, just literally like a clip of Roberta Calindra's doing her smoking a cigarette or something. The second thing that happened was someone tweeted, huh, I, I thought this was going to be a show about baseball with a side of gay, but it's actually a gay show with a side of baseball. And I was like, hmm, that was exactly my assumption. My interest is piqued. The third thing that happened that really pushed me over the edge was my friend, who's a lesbian, was telling me that, first of all, she loves the show, but also that her mom, who's straight, watched the show and said, like, you know, I enjoyed it, but wasn't it a bit gratuitous? And I was like, all right, I have to watch it now. And I have to say, I agree with that straight mom. It is extremely gratuitous. The, the whole thing to me feels like um, lesbian fan service. But I digress. The show for those of you who don't know, is an adaptation and expansion of the 1992 Penny Marshall film by the same name. That one starred Gina Davis, Rosie O'Donnell, who plays the silver butch of my dreams in the new version. Um, Also, Lori Petty and Madonna. Basically, 100% queer icons were in the first one. And it was about the real-life women's baseball league that started during World War II when all the men were off fighting in the war. But we, as a nation, just could not go a few years without watching baseball and probably falling asleep during baseball. Um, So that movie was so formative for a whole generation of baby gays, and it was so queer, despite having 
zero queer storylines in it, zero explicit queer storylines, that actually we have a dyke bar in D.C. named A League of Their Own. It's just accepted as a canonically gay film, so much so that I feel like I've sort of memory hold the original version of the film that or the only version of the film that had no gayness in it. And I'm like, wait a minute, weren't there gay characters in that film? My partner was like, no, no one was gay. You just remember them as gay because we all sort of agreed that it was a queer film. (laughs) Anyway, this new show was co-created by someone named Will Graham. Okay, good job, Will. Um, But more importantly, Abby Jacobson, who stars in the show as Carter Shaw, a putatively straight married gal from Idaho who's never even had pizza before. Her husband is off at war, and she experiences an instantaneous queer awakening when she joins the Rockford Peaches baseball team. I'm sure many softball players out there can relate. (laughs) Um, There's also Shantae Adams, who I've never seen in anything before, but I am obsessed with. Um, she plays Maxine or Max, who's a black baseball nut who is just convinced that she could be a star pitcher if some league would just let her play. Darcy Carden, who played Janet on The Good Place, for those of you who watched that show. She is Greta, who's like a more experienced mm. queer who has a fling with Carter. And my queen, Roberta Calindres, I would watch her do just about anything. Uh, um, she wow. plays Lupe the Peaches pitcher who spends most of the season injured on the bench. This show, there's so much to talk about, but to kick us off, I want to talk about one of the most striking, and I have to believe controversial choices that the creators and writers made on the show, which is that it's pretty loyal from an aesthetic sense to the 1940s, the period costumes, the production design, even the plot lines, but the dialogue and the mannerisms are straight out of 2022. Um, Abby Jacobson feels like she's acting in Broad City. They say things like, What are you so happy about? Uh, I, 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 I've never been in a convent before, and I, I love God. Me too. Big fan. Yeah, let me show you around. You know, when they're like entering a nunnery, I'm pretty sure one of the characters uses the word problematic. So, Jules, as our resident historian, how how did that work for you? What function did that play for you? And did you like it? <sighs> Look, you know, let's say I don't have a lot of, like, studio execs in my life. Um, I don't know anyone <laughs> high yet. up at Amazon yet. So, you know, I'm assuming, you know, it's like some someone had a really, really big light bulb moment where they were like, well, if they talk like how we talk today, that's hashtag relatable. You know, I, so, okay, here we are. You gotta, you gotta, you know, sort of play the hand you're dealt. But my, my reaction to that is like, you know, you know, maybe listeners have sort of picked up on the fact that like, I practically am a woman from the 1940s. Okay. Like I always like, you know, I have wanted my whole life to talk with a mid-Atlantic accent. I'm not going to do it right now because I'm feeling a little shy. Um, But I just, you know, to me, there's a missed opportunity, you know, for the camp and kind of high femme um, sort of role. And also actually, it could have been sort of a fault line to play with both for like butch or trans mask characters who obviously can't fit into that sort of hiding in plain sight kind of forties camp. Um, but also, you know, for 
the Black characters in the show to think about their relationship to that kind of racialized tone or presentation, um, as well as, you know, the the Latinx characters, too. So that, that, to me, feels like a bit of a missed opportunity. Yeah, it wasn't clear to me whether the, you know, hashtag relatable dialogue was supposed to add some sort of new layer of meaning to the story, like Mm. trying to help us put ourselves in the shoes of these women in the same way that like, you know, colorized old photos are supposed to make us realize, oh, these were real people Uh. and not just, you know, stuck in time, like images to project ideas onto. But actually, I think it was just to make it more memeable. And also, maybe Abby Jacobson only has one mode of verbal humor. And it's sort of that, like, awkward, self-deprecating, like, fish-out-of-water style. Let me ask you about the straight mom's review of the show. Um, (laughs) Did you feel it was gratuitous? How did you feel about the fact, and I don't know if you guys knew this going in, that all of the main characters were queer and that, like, at least one Mm. of them, the main character, went from, like, not knowing what lesbianism was to making out with a woman on day one of the baseball league. So was this mom, was she using gratuitous (laughs) in a, like... In, in a sort of negative way, like yeah, love it. Like, so she was, okay. and I think I think of it in that way. Okay, okay. Positive, where yeah. uh, let me be a little clear with what I'm getting at here. So it felt to me a little bit like they're just giving us what we want, <laughs> and How dare on they? a base level, I was so happy. I was like, oh wow, this really is a show. None of it is really surprising necessarily. It sort of hits all of the notes that you would expect a queer historical drama to hit and I'm wondering whether that pleased you guys or whether you felt a little bit like oh okay Mm. this is like you just took a fan fiction and made a show out of it (laughs) (laughs) one thing that works works really well with the series is that it feels very sort of storyline first very character first you know there are a lot of queer characters in there but it never came across as like didactic or like we're trying to sort of smuggle in these things which I feel like can make for like bad art it felt very much like you know we're gonna give dimension to all of these different characters Mm -hmm. and it makes them feel very true to life and also they're queer and so it felt like the direction was like we want an engaging sort of compelling story and also these characters are queer and so to me it felt less gratuitous I guess uh, but then also I was surprised. I thought like maybe like one character would be queer. So <laughs> when when I, you know, as I watched it and I learned like how many queer characters are, I was like, oh, wow, like it's almost the whole team. <laughs> yeah, which may be real. That might be true to life for all we know about the baseball leagues back mm-hmm. then, because it does feel like the the um, alternative Um, approach, which was the original film, to make no characters explicitly queer is just as ahistorical as someone saying the word problematic in 1940. Mm. Yeah, no, I'm I'm so glad you you both were interested in that aspect, because I have to admit, like, it kind of got me. Um, You know, I started watching and I was like, okay, like, okay, wait a minute, what? Like, all of these people are gay like and some of them Mm -hmm. are clearly trans 
But, oh, I see. Like, the show only has room for maybe, like, one or two queer romance storylines or something, so we can't... And then, you know, later on, without giving away too much, like, it kind of... The show kind of pulls back the curtain and is like, oh, no, 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 actually, they all were. But, like, our point of view characters didn't quite get that. And I was like, oh, damn, y'all got me. Um, And I actually think that was a really (laughs) smart choice because, like, to me, then, gratuitous takes on a different significance. Like, I feel like... And maybe, like, straight viewers wouldn't... Well, I don't even know, because I'm, like, again, a historian of sexuality, and I know a lot about the 1940s, and so I watch it in, like, a really ridiculously intense way. But I actually... The thing that I liked sort of about... It's not about historical accuracy alone. I actually think it's a good storytelling device, was that the show made a kind of decision to sort of, um, you know, visually, storyline-wise, a little dissociate our access to... Mm queerness um and it also made i think uh, a, a maybe like the only <laughs> kind of smart choice the show makes about race is to it actually like digs into segregation uh and you yeah. know the black characters their storylines on the show are physically story-wise separated from mm-hmm. the the non-black team um and we're you know especially following max you know, on on the one hand, Max's story is about how much she just cannot get onto a field. Like she cannot throw a ball for any team. And it's like, you know, in the first in the, the first episode, I was like, oh, okay, are they just gonna do this for episode one? And at the end of episode one, she's gonna somehow make it onto the team, which just seems really like a little, you know, like, okay, let's let's not pretend mm-hmm. that's America. And then they don't. And mm-hmm. I was like, oh cool, because yeah. then you also get to see you know, a black social world, in particular a black queer and trans social world that is sort of figuring out how to to bloom um, within, you know, northern segregation. So I think like those that that kind of storytelling, I don't know how intentional it was, but like I think it's really good as a storytelling device. Um, but it also just to me it allowed for a little more depth. So yeah, like the different there are different kinds of queerness, right? It's not just like there are 2022 lesbians, you know? So like, despite the sort of like the way people are talking, I actually feel like there's a range of queer people. There's a range of different kinds of people, many of whom like were 1940s kinds of people. So there was something about that I found actually quite satisfying. Um, and I really yeah. appreciate it because I can't think of a show that has been that thoughtful about that before. I feel like there's just so much pressure to take like contemporary identity and say like there must have been people like that in the 1940s too but they were erased or hidden or repressed and it's like no actually they had their own lives like they navigated the world as it was right and so like a lot of queer life was sort of hidden but like not really hidden because it's like pretty obvious when you put these people in skirts and throw them on a field that they just look insanely gay um and you know i feel like there's something sort of helpful there's something a bit refreshing about that although it did make me wonder just to to say one more thing about the dialogue issue where i was like as again as a weirdo nerd historian you know it's like i'm sure it's really hard for people to imagine like how did gay people talk to each other in 1943 right and actually to answer that question is like quite challenging um like even if i were 
if I had been consulting on that, on the dialogue on the show, like I would have really had to think about it because it would have been so class stratified. It would have been so Mm. stratified by region in the United States. And it would have been so, um, you know, so much collected around racial segregation that actually figuring out how to make people talk to each other, also like talk to each other when, when they're in front of cameras playing a baseball game or when they're at um, the secret gay bar in town, right? When they're alone having an intimate moment right? Or having sex versus when they're talking to their coach, right? It's, those are not super, super clear um, things to figure out either. So I have a little bit of, I guess, like begrudging respect for that challenge. But I just think at the storytelling level, the show is, is pretty good about it. That is such a good point about the difficulty of constructing that kind of dialogue, in part because, like, we probably know how people wrote letters to each other, but there's no, like, we don't have voice memos. We don't have, you know, like, clips of people out in the wild in their most private moments speaking to one another. And I'm sure, you know, there wasn't, like, a queer monoculture, as you said. It's, like, people in different parts of the country who were queer may not have ever met each other and shared their terminology for things or people in Mm. Max's world would not have necessarily interacted, but certainly didn't, you know, as we see in the show, interacted with people in Carson's world. And for the first two episodes, I felt like uh, they're trying to do too much by having Max's whole storyline take up half of the episode and then the white baseball, white and Latina baseball team taking the rest of the episode. Like, how are we going to care about both of these two worlds. It took a couple episodes, but I actually think they, I did end up caring about both worlds and feeling like I understood Mm -hmm. and cared about the characters in both places. And uh, just to bring it back to sports for a second, the fact that Max was not able to play on either the integrated men's team or the white and Latinx women's team made her worse at baseball because she didn't have a chance to play with anyone. And I felt like that was a really deftly written metaphor for the way that exclusion like dims people's prospects and like dims their talent and their um, possibility. And I feel like there were a couple moments in Max's world that gave me the most, I mean, I felt like, titillated by much of what was happening in the other world, uh, in both worlds. But um, the most like deeply emotional moments were for me when Max, before she had come out to anyone in her life, was sort of witnessing people talk about people who she loved and perhaps thought like, maybe if I come out to them, it would be okay. Then hearing them talk about a queer person that they knew, um, a trans person saying like, just terrible things about him and having her sort of realize on camera like oh these people who I love so much and who accept me in so many other ways will actually detest me ostracize me and I'll lose my relationship with them if I show them my full self that was like I don't know probably more so than the dialogue something that I felt like I could also relate to from you know earlier in my sort of journey and like they didn't even need to make it hashtag relatable for me to relate to it because those stories still play out in different ways today. Yeah, I'm really glad you both brought up the the structure because I felt the same way at first. Where at first I was like, mm, is this going to work? Is this not going to work? Um, but definitely, yeah, by like episode two or three, I was very down for it because I thought one thing that it 
showed in addition to everything else uh, you both have said is I thought that it really captured the sort of belatedness that Max had to face. Like you have these two parallel sort of storylines and as the peaches, they're starting to thrive, they're coming into their own, you know, by episode like five or six. And then you still have Max in her her storyline, who's still struggling just to be taken Mm -hmm. seriously, who is like, Mm -hmm. oh, if I get a job at the factory, then I'm able to like be on this team or to try out for the team. Um, And so I thought it showed just like how one group is sort of, um, you know, they have their own challenges, but they're able to start um, sort of thriving uh, under those challenges. And then you have Max, who is still just trying to you know, she just wants someone to like look at her and see her skills. Um, and so I thought that the structure also did a really great job of capturing that. I want to give you guys the chance to bring up any characters or scenes or issues that, that you want to talk about too. Well, I would love to, to talk about, um, yeah, Max's uncle Bertie uh, a little bit. One of my favorite characters I've seen in a television show in a really long time Um And, you know, I'm not really like a big representation matters kind of girl, Um, but I think there was something just so powerful to me about seeing a working class black trans man from the 1940s. And again, you know, happy to be our resident historian and say like, they did a pretty good job, you know, like, you know, it's, it's complicated, right? I mean, the, the, the notion that being queer trans automatically you know, means sort of the loss of your kinship structure or the loss of your family is, you know, in America, a pretty whitewashed assumption. And I don't think that it's actually always accurate, especially not historically in different black communities. Uh, And, you know, especially in the 1940s. Yeah, I just, you know, the way that the show sort of brings us to um, Max learning, you know, that someone who she thought of very differently is a man, is is her uncle, right? And actually is living quite unapologetically, very skillfully, very strategically, you know, in a very smart way, you know, has a partner and 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 you know, Max sort of starts off the series, you know, with 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 her mother being her sort of prime the primary person in her life and her mother sort of being really, you know, kind of like the mayor of the of the black community in Rockford where they live, and comes comes to find out that her uncle Bertie is also kind of like the mayor, you know? <laughs> and like it turns out, right, that black life in this town is actually more comp- much more complicated than she knew. And there's just something about the performance, um, you know, that, that that the actor brings to the performance, this kind of, um, it really, I mean, for me, it really hits both like in terms of historical accuracy and just like hits like emotionally, you know, there's a kind of um, a really well put together kind of confidence, a certain kind of wisdom earned, you know, by a way of life. And just this kind of like, you know, there's a little bit of a kind of mentoring relationship going on there. And the way that Birdie sort of plays that um, masculine, you know, that sort of butch trans masculine kind of mentoring role. You know, there's a scene, um, you know, at a party, you know, a black queer party where, you know, Max and Bertie are chatting in one room and have kind of had a moment where they needed to make up um, over something diegetically. And, you know, Max has kind of had her eye on a woman at the party and, and Bertie, you know, is sitting there in just an absolutely fucking impeccable um, tailored suit. 
and kind of glances over his shoulder and looks at Max and says like, is that your girl? Is that your girl? No, no, I, I, don't, I don't know her. I, I never met her. Never met her. Well, you better get going. Go ahead, get going. Okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> in that one moment I was like yes that's exactly like it's not just like that's exactly what that person would have said but like it just showed so much about about a kind of you know about the the true like you know just the fact of that kind of you know black masculine mentoring in that era that it like takes these like really you know I don't know, just like so much was said in that moment without having to be didactic and telling. And I just so, you know, I guess I'm a sort of like defensive, protective viewer. I'm like, please don't didacticize black, queer and trans stories. Yeah. Please don't turn them into teachable moments for a white audience, for any audiences, but especially for white audiences. And I just feel like there's this respect commanded by the character Birdie that is is gentle and thoughtful, but like unmistakable. And it just, you know, I don't know. I just have a little bit of goosebumps about it because I guess Birdie is the kind of person that like I've encountered in my research. I've spent a lot of time thinking about in my head, you know, I've, I've always imagined huh. like, what would he look like? What would he sound like? How would he walk into a room? Who would be his people, you know? And even if I could know that intellectually to see that brought to life in a performance is just really moving. So I, I just, you know, and I, and I don't know that the show is marketed at all sort of to lead with that. You know, it's like, I know people who know that actor. And, you know, I feel like there's like a lot of like in the community, like people really excited about this kind of moment as in terms of like acting possibilities and jobs and stuff. Um, but I just really want to underline it because I think like even if the rest of the show was a dud, I would be like absolutely proselytizing people to watch it just to meet Uncle Birdie. When you talk about how glad you were that it wasn't didactic, I feel like the show was written to allow people to come into it with the kind of naivete that Carson was when, you know, she yeah. has no idea like what queerness is. She doesn't know any queer people. She doesn't know even if she is queer. Um, and then you have Max, who has been doing queer stuff since she was a teenager, but is still sort of new to this queer community. And so you, in both storylines, you have people who can sort of serve that role for the viewer as like, oh, I'm still kind of learning about this. I'm excited when we go to the secret gay bar for the first time or the incredible like black queer party for the first time. But, you know, nothing would be necessarily explicitly spelled out for those characters. It's a lot of um, understanding by osmosis. And I feel like the writers gave the viewers that kind of respect, too, where we're allowed to just sort of witness and observe and absorb instead of saying, like, you know, well, as you know, we are not allowed in white spaces. So here we are with our own, you know, actually amazing space that makes us not even we're not like sad we can't get into the white gay bar. You know, we have like two equally incredible parties going on at the same time. And like everyone knows why that's happening. Here, here. Also, just one thing that I didn't realize until maybe episode three, but I sort of like, you know, squealed with joy when I saw that uh, Jamie Babbitt directed i think yes. the first three episodes yeah mm -hmm. and i was like <gasps> I, I imagine that also brought sort of like another degree of sort of um thoughtfulness uh to queer storylines yeah. to have you know the person who directed but i'm a cheerleader also um involved with the show i also think it's notable that 
Abby Jacobson had a somewhat late in life coming out story. And she has said that, you know, this helped me bring that sort of excitement and also fear to that character. That feeling of like, oh, whoa, I've been eating like warm bread my whole life. Mm. And now I get to have pizza. Um, But also (laughs) I could get arrested for having pizza. Obviously, that's not true in Abby Jacobson's life. But um, I love thinking about the way that, you know, these creative products that are exciting to watch may also be personally fulfilling sort of narrative stories to play out for Mm. the people in them. And one of the players, one of the Rockford Peaches who inspired the original story just came out as gay at age 95 as sort of part of the promotional rollout for this film. Um, (laughs) So there's kind of a lot of little heartwarming um, side stories to this whole show. All right, listeners, we would love to hear what you think about this show. Again, it's a league of their own, and it's on Amazon Prime. You can email us with your thoughts at any time at outwardpodcast at slate.com. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. So I like to think that we're entering something of a golden age for trans documentary because we've been seeing a lot of really innovative storytelling and also just subject matter in recent documentary films, both about and also I think really importantly produced by trans people um, that are just so much more interesting than the kind of older, you know, standard fare that tended to be a little bit more objectifying or certainly often centered around tragedy narratives. And so here comes Day of Board, a really moving and thoughtful film that's now streaming on Netflix. And this documentary follows Leo Baker, a world-renowned pro skater in the run-up to the very first Olympic Games in which skateboarding was going to be included as a sport, which would have been in 2020. But having been forced his whole career to hide from the public that he's trans, both sort of to satisfy the gender segregation of elite sport and also maybe corporate sponsorships, the film really digs into a kind of pivotal period during which Baker has to decide whether to continue putting off so much of what he wants for his life, including top surgery, in order to be able to compete at the Olympics. And I just, I've never really seen a film quite like this. And I also want to say Leo is just the most charming protagonist. Um, Personally, he really reminded me of all the skater boys I used to crush on in high school because I grew up in the Pacific Northwest. But obviously that's a story for another day. Mm-hmm. 
we're so happy to welcome two really key people uh, from the film. Alex Schmitter is a producer who's worked on a number of really exciting recent uh, projects that I would also encourage listeners to check out, including Changing the Game, which you can find on Hulu, Disclosure, which is on Netflix, and a little old movie called Framing Agnes, uh, where I first got to meet Alex. Uh, you know, we're talking about somebody here who is, you know, Emmy, Peabody, and Critics' Choice Award nominated talent. And speaking of winners, we're also joined by Nicola Marsh, who's worked on some really incredible projects, including the Oscar-winning film 20 Feet from Stardom, and just has like a suite of Showtime and Netflix credits that can make anyone blush in, in Los Angeles. So Nicola is the incredibly talented director of, of Stay On Board. So Alex, Nicola, welcome to Outward. Thank you so much for, for joining us today. Thanks for having us. So thrilled to be here. To get us started, I, I wonder if, if both of you could maybe say a bit about kind of how just this project got started, especially you, Nicola. I mean, you know, the film sort of opens in 2019. Um, and as someone who is watching as a total newcomer to pro skating, I kind of am just sort of curious, like, were you always like a Leo Baker fan or like what got you into this project in the first place? Um, and maybe more broadly, like what interested both of you about telling a story about queer and trans pro athletes? The project first came to me because the one of the executive producers was a good friend of mine and I work quite heavily and for a long period of time in documentaries. And this guy, Retta, who was uh, this skater dude, was wanted to make a documentary about Leo, and he had never done a, a feature doc before. And th the executive producer, my friend Amber, introduced me, and, and I was like, this is great. This is all the elements that you want in a doc, which is like the sort of candy wrapper around a really serious topic. Mm. And it's issues that we often want to talk about but are really difficult to access because they're either totally cerebral or they're of putting for a mainstream audience or whatever it is. You don't want it to be just a sort of like talking head documentary. The purpose of documentaries, not all of them, but a lot of them are to try and embody with the body an idea. And mm. here was Leo being like, how do you embody personal choice? Leo's going to show us. Mm. And how does he have agency in this world that is at every turn trying to hem him in? And so then we started making it. And then we desperately needed Alex. <laughs> you know, we started cutting, making cuts, and the and the cisness of our lens became really obvious. Mm. And and it wasn't appropriate for sort of Leo to be the educator on that. And it became clear to me that I didn't know enough about what I was doing. And I at the time I was like, I'm a lesbian, I get it. Like coming out, sure, yeah. Who 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 doesn't that get this? But it was, it's a, it, I think there's a real tendency amongst the gay community to sort of subsume the trans community mm. within it. And I think I was really guilty of doing that myself. And it was becoming really problematic in the edit, like really problematic. Mm. Alex, did you feel that way when you came on board? Came on board to stay on board. Um, <laughs> I... You know, I'd actually known Nicola and Retta for a few years because I was in the process of producing Changing the Game and going through my own journey of understanding my own discomfort with trans inclusion in sports. 
even as a trans person myself, just because we're inundated by media that is telling a specific narrative. And so I'd been going on my own personal and professional journey um, with learning and unlearning about this topic. And so when I met Nicola and Retta, we had a very um, honest conversation. It was before COVID that we met and they were talking about Leo was a was going to have top surgery and they were going to be following his journey in that and and all these things were evolving and also in 2019 like Leo wasn't even like Leo wasn't even going by Leo like we had no idea that he was really just gonna go with it at that point mm. we were like early on and COVID having happened and the Olympics at the time felt right around the corner and then they obviously got delayed and you know it just was like. It just, we didn't quite understand how uh, much pressure there was going to be on him because the whole thing was going to be done in nine months, you know, uh, and and how public all of that was going to be. And I was just really drawn to it because I'm really drawn, I mean, gender has always been something I've been really intrigued by uh, and construction in general. And and here was Leo in his totally unacademic setting you know, mm. like I've explored it a lot academically, but like this was like not that. He wasn't even thinking about it in terms of like, you know, maybe Mel, his girlfriend, was thinking about the binary, <laughs> but he was just like out living his life, being his real self, you know? When I saw the first cut, I was, there was a lot to work with. From Leo's perspective as well, it's hard when you are in the process of these major life events. So what Leo was communicating, but what is important to him then it's up to documentary filmmakers and storytellers to take what he's saying and put that into a narrative that's going to go out into the world and what gets to remain private mm -hmm. and what what is public. And so when I first um, came onto the team, we just had a lot of difficult conversations about what that would look like. And while something is really important to Leo, does he get to keep that for himself or is that for public consumption as well? And um, so, you know, this kind of collaboration, I always say, can only happen with willing participants, with willing conspirators and collaborators. And Nicola Retta and myself and our editor who we brought on, Sasha Perry, who was brilliant, all engaged in an honest and good faith dialogue about the nuances and complexities of telling Leo's very particular and specific story while knowing that on a global platform such as Netflix, mm. people inevitably are going to take Leo and use him as an example of all trans people of all time. And so that was also really important for us in the edit and interviews for him to be able to say, this is me, this is my story, and I'm speaking for myself and no one else. And it's something I really love about how the documentary ends up is that he's, there are many iterations um, and every version of us counts. It's really interesting to kind of look behind the curtain in this moment where we're seeing a lot more trans content, you know, trans representation, it's often presented to us just as a matter of inclusion, like input new content that was missing and things get better. But actually the process is a lot more complex. So there's something really very trans also, right? About making a film about someone who's going through that pivotal moment or a pivotal moment in their life and thinking about how you make that. Um, but it is also, you know, a film about sports that I think, you know, one of the interesting things that I know, you know, Christina and, and, and Brandon and I have kind of been thinking about is like, 
you know, I think sometimes for let's call them outsiders to sports, like <clears throat> talking about myself um, or <laughs> casual fans, there's sort of this perception that organized sports or or maybe especially pro sports are just kind of like inherently gay under the sort of broad rubric of quote unquote women's sports, right? So that like, oh, well, they must kind of be welcoming if like most of the people are secretly queer or not secretly queer. But I actually think one of the things that really stood out to me in this film and, and, and that I really appreciate is it actually digs very deeply into the gender policing and homophobia and transphobia that actually like comes almost with that perception that like, oh, the, there be queers here. Well, actually, yeah, that perception seems almost to like defensively, you know, cause all these problems. And so like this yeah. whole idea of like women skateboarding, um, you know, as a category, you know, even though like I kept feeling like when I was watching, I was like, well, this all looks so gay, but the people right. who are doing it seem very uncomfortable and very stressed out. And, and I guess, you know, uh, you know, wondering sort of if, if, if my, my reading of that is kind of on track and also sort of what, sort of what, yeah, are you kind of hoping that viewers of the film kind of walk away with sort of understanding better about how elite sport, even though like there are these jokes about like women's sports being very gay or whatever, that actually that sort of elite sports structure is even maybe more gender policed or even sort of more homophobic in some way. Yeah, like just for an example, Leo was uh, talking about how when he was younger, you know, he had long blonde hair and and people really sort of latched onto that as like, this is great for marketing you like mm -hmm. a girl skateboarder with long blonde hair. And like there's this clash of like masculinity and femininity. And they really tried mm. to put him into this box, even though, you know, when I think of skateboarding and especially like women's skateboarding, which was the category Leo was competing under. I think of like a whole big bunch of homos. <laughs> I think that when you get into the world of sports and or capitalism, you're entering into sort of like things that are predicated on sort of like win-lose game theory. You know what I mean? Mm. Like that's how it works. And that inevitably creates sort of binaries that the winner and a loser and a man and a woman. And like, even if it's gay, you're playing in the women's team and, mm. you know, which I think is more the world that I came from. And it was really interesting to be subsumed into skateboarding and trans culture that were, were not those things mm. at all. And it took a long time for me to be like talking to Red and my co-director being like, I just don't understand. Like, what's the point? Like, if you're not in a competition, you're just skating, but like, why? Like, how? Like, what's the point? And he's like, cause you're skating for excellence, for personal, you know, and like, that was like, ah, that's, that's a crazy thing to do. And the trans idea was also that like, it doesn't need a category and definition, but then when you try to make money out of it, mm. like either through marketing or competition, you sign into this compact to say, yeah, okay, I agree with this. Like it's tacit, mm. but it's there. And then there's no space for you because your Leo was trying to sort of be two things at the same time. And the world was like, weird, no, don't want it. I, I do want to come back to and ask ask a question about Leo because, you know, again, for anyone who's listening who hasn't watched the film yet, it's like you're just you're gonna fall in love with him. Such a sweetheart. So well spoken too. And so there's this there's this one moment that really kind of 
really kind of snatched my heart in the film um, where I think Leo got a little philosophical. Uh, and so he says, if I was living a different life, I might just transition and move to a new city and live happily ever after. But I'm in a space where I have to have a conversation about it with the world. And I don't want to. You know, I, I took a beat when I heard him say that because like, it's really profound. But then as I often do when I'm watching something, I like shouted out loud at the TV um, because I thought it was just so elegant and it really summed up something that I wish was better understood about being trans because so often, you know, identity and visibility and coming out are presented like, well, you just have to do this thing and then it like makes your life better. And it's like, it's so good to express your true inner self. And not to say that people don't have, you know, their own true inner selves. But I think actually in reality, a lot of how our lives are structured and a lot of how trans people are antagonized aren't really about like our identities. It's a lot just about like work, you know, what you do for a living, who's paying your bills, um, like how you are able to function in the public world. And to be a pro athlete, you're under, you know, just a massive amount of scrutiny. And all of that is bound up in what kind of life you're allowed to live. And so I think what was so fascinating to me, like also as a historian is Leo conjures, like what was for a really long time, pretty standard trans procedure. Like you literally did used to kind of transition and move to a new city and start over and like be a new person. And, you know, as someone who also transitioned like a little bit publicly, like I totally get that envy. It just sounds like so much nicer to be able to do that. But I was sort of curious if like sort of this process, especially from a filmmaking perspective, Nicola, like following along with Leo for years, if that sort of is partially how the film became so much about like the job of being like a pro athlete. Like, you know, there's so many scenes where Leo's like, gotta go to the airport, you know, trying to make a, a, a medical appointment, you know, in between all these trips, talking about like, when do you even get paid for things? Like what money do you have to front just to get small? Like all this stuff, it's like, you know, gosh, like being a trans person is really expensive. And it's like not a foregone conclusion that being well-recognized on the international scale pays for anything. And I'm just sort of curious if like, if that those are issues that were sort of front and center um, in the project, or was there something about kind of this process of following Leo over these years and like watching him day in and day out, like have to like do this job um, and eventually make some hard decisions about it? I'm just so curious, like how how that emphasis in the film kind of came about. Well, I mean, Leo said this thing to me, like after we'd finished the film, and like Netflix was asking us like, what pronouns are, are we, should we use? And like, we write the little blurbs and it was like, do we say trans man? And I was like calling him up and being like, okay, dude, like lay it out because otherwise it's gonna go out to like 150 countries, right. not how you want it. And he said, I would just prefer not to be seen at all. Wow. Not that he wants to disappear, but he doesn't want to, to see himself reflected back in every conversation that he has. And I think as a trans man constantly calibrating his identity in each different setting, he was just so exhausted with that process of like presentation. And, and he would just like to not think about that for a mm. second, right? 
And I think that that passing allows you to not think about it for a second. The moving to another town and nobody knows your past, right? So you don't have to constantly be like me in the world and how I'm and vis-a-vis my how people work. Just uh, and I think it's just it's really tiring. It's really tiring for him. And I think he's re-energized now because we've stopped filming for a bit and the film has come out. But there was a period mm. there where he was just like, I just want to be in my apartment and just be in my body and my skin and be present but it's really difficult to be present when you're thinking about how other people are perceiving you and his goal was to not be perceived i think that is a luxury that you have when you have a a more mainstream powerful identity right as you spend less time thinking Mm -hmm. about what spaces you're safe in and what spaces you're not safe in and and you just get to walk through the world not thinking about yourself all the time why do you think he agreed to participate in the documentary given that he you know felt so exhausted by being perceived i mean there's almost nothing more aggressively perceiving than a documentary filled over the course of years i mean i think it's the duality of wanting somebody to bear witness to what the fuck you're going through right but then also just being really naive and not understanding what we were (laughs) Like, you know, we're going to make it dark. And he was like, cool, never really watched that many of them. I'll do it. And I think there were several times where we were like, you know, we we were like a dog with a bone. And he was like trying to shake out Mm -hmm. of our grip. And he was like, you know, not being on our phone calls for a second. He's like, I'm really in it right now. I really don't want to talk to you guys. And then I think, you know, the lockdowns happened at a really great time for him and allowed us to build relationship without constantly being like, oh, can you say that on camera? Oh, can we film you again? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, just... It's like a fallowness that was really helpful to his growth. He was also really nervous, obviously, in 2019, for which is why, you know, he hadn't come out publicly about the reaction. And so when the doc came out and he, you know, came out to the world and there wasn't this like incredible backlash, which I think, you know, even if it wasn't conscious, I think subconsciously mm. he was nervous about it. I think that felt really a relief and validating. Like I can just. I've done it, you know, Mm. I don't have to um, think about it anymore. Mm. I feel like one thing that really struck me um, about the documentary was, so I, last year I read uh, Sean Faye's book, The Transgender Issue. Mm -hmm. um, And there's one part in there where she really talks about sort of the violence of the medical system um, toward trans people. I feel like sometimes it can be this sort of assumption that like doctors or whomever, like they always have your back sort of thing. Um, But the part, and Jules talked about this a little earlier, but the part where Leo is trying to make an appointment um, and he needs um, his uh, doctor to sort of like give permission and stuff like that and just Mm. all these different roadblocks. Uh, But it just really sort of, um, I, I thought painted a very vivid picture of just that uh, the hostility, the violence um, that trans people run up against uh, with the medical system. So I'm curious, uh, like, how did you decide how much of these sorts of very sensitive, intimate moments to portray? I know you said that there are a lot of conversations um, and, you know, sort of, even if Leo says that he wants something sort of like at some point, do you have to say like, maybe this isn't mm. the best thing to include uh, like for like his own sort of like safety. Do we have to think about how he might feel about something later? But like, what, mm. what was that like? Uh, yeah, there were lots of conversations about that. To be honest, it took me a second to understand a lot of the notes 
And to understand, like one of our notes was like, time is a very cis concept. And I get it. What does that mean? It means that like when you when you make an observational doc about somebody who's going through transition, you're like, look at the before and look at the Mm. after and what time, right? And we really were leaning into that. And like that's not uh interesting or new. The before and after in itself in life in general Mm. is not as clear as we want to believe it. It's just a sort of helpful categorization to help us remember when things happen, sort of. And so put these fake lines in our memory for when things start and stop. There were lots of things that I thought were really interesting and really tentative and reaching around for the light switch that maybe were a little bit too vulnerable. That part, right, of me understanding that, like, there is a whole wide world that this doc is going out Mm. to, and it's not just about the truth of Leo's lived experience, although that is part of it. And think about that. Mm. So you're saying that there was also thinking of some kind of agenda. When you get really biological about how somebody is trying transitioning, that's going to read as a certain way to uh, maybe cis audience mm-hmm. that isn't particularly helpful and feels very observational and very sort of like this sort of hard lens of sort of um perceiving and standing outside of the person Hmm. and so the goal of the documentary for me and Reda and Alex and Sasha was to try and make it as subjective as possible Hmm. to make it about Leah's experience since you get a lot of sound design that has a lot of like trying to really bolt into what Leo is feeling in those moments as opposed to like what it looks like that he's going through from the outside right? right getting the interior rather than the exterior and physicality, which is often the thing that's most focused on. But like, actually, I think one of the most beautiful transformations that happens in the doc is you see Leo in those moments where he's saying like, yeah, I I considered killing myself. And then you see him in his final interview. (laughs) And there's a light in his eyes. Like he is settled and embodied. And like, it's maybe more subtle than a physical transformation, but like to see someone alive when they haven't been able to feel that way, like that I think is what was so brilliantly captured by Nicola and Retta and Sasha in the editing was like, that's actually a compelling transformation Mm -hmm. of saying, fuck the Olympics. Look how alive I am because I chose myself. Another example is like that scene, the Lady Gaga scene in the yeah. car, right? Uh-huh, when they're uh-huh. Lady Gaga, which I fought for. I mean, we all fought for it so hard, but you have no idea how. Oh it my gosh, I that know, is. right? I bet <laughs> Nicola and I and Leah, like little monsters, yes. we needed that because that euphoria, <laughs> yes. that moment. Sorry, just to give context to our listeners, it's um, when Leo's girlfriend picks him up from um, his top surgery. And they're sort of in the car driving home. Mm. And Leo, I think, says like, oh, we need to listen to Lady Gaga right now. Maybe it's on the radio. And he turns it up. Mm. Um, it really is a beautiful yeah. moment. I know. And like at the time, I was like, not that song. I know that song is owned by five production <laughs> companies. It's never- <laughs> any, any other Lady Gaga song, please not that song. But they sing Always and Forever or whatever from that Remember movie. us this yeah. way. Yeah. And uh And there are lots of things that happen in top surgery that were physical and interesting and like, you know, all the things that happen when you get top surgery. But the moment for me was that car moment. 
And even I realized my own sort of, I don't know if I want to call it transphobia, but lack of understanding because I, it was the middle of COVID. I flew out to Florida. I was like, I'm going to go film Leo. This is kind of important. And then in my head, I was thinking, well, we're going to pick him up from surgery. And it's like, he's going to be in pain. It's post-surgery. It's going to be a bit of a downer. I don't even know why I'm filming it, but I know I have to be there. Mm. I didn't understand what joy there would be in that mm. moment. Mm. I didn't understand what the surgery meant to him until I saw it with my own eyes. So we had a lot of conversations about what transition elements would make it ultimately in the film, because obviously Leo is in this in this place of actually going through it. And I think that's the benefit of adding people to a team that are in the producing and the editing room is that, again, the the protagonist, whoever is the subject of a documentary, as they're going through it, it's very hard to be able to reflect on that and, and filter yourself rather than allow other people to deal with that. And so one of the most interesting conversations uh, and wrestling that we did was around testosterone. Mm. It was this amazing scene we had, which we took out. And it's when Leo first does tea. And I really liked it because it was this point in his life where he's like, he's making that step. He's taking that step. And the ambivalence that he feels is really, it's not even ambivalence, uncertainty, fear, all of it was in that moment. And he gets the thing, uh, you know, the little bottle, and then he can't walk out to put it into the syringe. And he gets a YouTube video and he's watching it. And then like, he's just about to put it in his leg and he looks up at the camera and he's like, you can't film me doing this. Camera switches off. And it was such a, because when all of us make really big life decisions, retroactively we will look back and we're like oh yeah I definitely married the right person and did the right thing and the right job but in the moments everybody I mean maybe it's just me but most people feel real moments of doubt when you make big life decisions most people are really like should I marry this person or not right before you do it and then you do it and it's maybe great or not or whatever like those are that's life and I love that that moment showed that but as Alex and Sasha and lots of people pointed out that is not what most people are going to read from that scene. And it's very about the body. And like, is it really about his skateboarding journey? Does it really help? Mm. And like, you may like it for these reasons, but that's not, it just looks like confusion and, and it's very personal. Yeah. And the ambivalence, again, to a global audience yeah. could read as like, hmm. he doesn't right. know who he is. Yeah, right. He's unsure. He's questioning. He shouldn't be doing this if he doesn't know. But to Nicola's point, like, most major life decisions are confusing and we are unsure and we're, we're take And so I, I saw the merit of it, but it also didn't add to the story that we were trying to tell. And so that was, that's illustrative of a lot of the different kinds of conversations that we had. And ultimately I think you don't miss it. Yeah. If, it not being there, but I, I think it's an interesting behind the scenes revelation to share. I consider myself an audience first storyteller. Like it is not all about mm. me and my vision for what the story should be. I'm very interested and concerned and attuned with how an audience is going to receive and go on this journey with a character or a protagonist. And so that's always top of mind, but how are they going to read this? And what are they going to get when they walk away? I imagine that it's particularly 
a particularly sensitive zone of reportage or documentary in a sports film because sports is so much about right. the body. But then you're talking about, you know, the uh, physical transition, which is like carries so much baggage in the public discourse. And you're making this for mixed company. It's going on Netflix. So um, it's so interesting to me to hear about how y'all grappled with all of that. And thank you for sharing. Yeah. That. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's a damn shame. We can't talk like truly for hours because we barely scratched the surface. <laughs> I just want to say, you know, truly to, to listeners, obviously put stay on board, you know, in your queue right now, go, go watch it. Stop what you're doing. Um, and Alex and Nicola, like, thank you so much. It's such an interesting conversation, especially to have a bit of a behind the scenes kind of look at, at how this film came to be. But thank you both so much for coming on the show and congratulations on, I think, just a really special and important documentary. You're very kind. Thank you for saying that. Well, that's about it for this month. Sad to see you go. But before we close out, we have a few things to recommend for your gay agenda. Um, Brandon, as our guest of honor, why don't you go first? Yeah, so this is uh, very true to form uh, for me. Um, But my item is Rina Sawayama's second album, uh, which, which just came out today. Um, or Friday when we're recording this, um, and uh, it's called "Hold the Girl." She's she's amazing. I can I can send you a playlist. Um, but she's a queer Japanese British uh, singer. You know, oh, wow. I I listened to the album as soon as it dropped at midnight, so I'm a little tired. Um, <laughs> I also ordered the vinyl, uh, limited edition. Uh, should be here hopefully in a week. One thing I I really love about her music is, uh, you know, she. I, I think really seamlessly combines sort of different elements. And so like you get snatches of like Lady Gaga and Kelly Clarkson and <laughs> Blink-182 and Korn and Limp Biscuit, uh, just all these like different um, uh, genres, specifically from like the 90s and like early 2000s. Um, and she makes them feel very fun and fresh, I think another sort of interesting element of her albums is that they also explore through these sort of like genres, uh, pop genres, maybe themes that are, that can be sort of underexplored. Um, So she talks about, you know, like the thrill of like queer intimacy. She talks about frayed family relationships because, you know, she was, her family moved to London um, when she was, I think five, she was raised by a single mother. um, So they had a strange relationship. And so that theme comes through in some of her songs. She talks about childhood trauma. Um, She talks about, you know, immigrant diaspora experiences. She talks about, uh, not caring about eternal damnation <laughs> um, in her song, This Hell. She, I think, is just so fascinating. Um, I, I've loved seeing her sort of ascent uh, over the past few years. So that's my that's my recommendation. Go check it out. Well, Brandon, if you're okay with it, maybe we'll put that playlist on our show page so our listeners can uh, experience your music mastery. Uh, I love forcing my taste on people. <laughs> Jules, what are you recommending this month? So my recommendation this month is a person, um, but, you know, like a multi-hyphenate talent that I just, I just want, you know, who's kind of having a moment and I just kind of want to shout that out. She's Hari Neff, who's uh, an actress, mm-hmm. a model, a writer. Listeners, you you might already know her. You might have already encountered her. Um, she kind of had this 
critically acclaimed role on Transparent, um, you know, way back in, I think, like 2015 or something, playing the character Giddle um, in a really interesting, surreal um, sort of flashback sequence. Um, but she's also just been like working various <laughs> international runways um, for a long time. She's going to be in that new um, Barbie movie, the live action Barbie oh, movie. Wow. Like, you know, like she is going places. She is one of the dolls who is going places. And I'm a big fan. Um, but she's just like been serving some of the fucking fiercest looks I've seen recently in photo shoots, but also, yeah, at different fashion weeks. And I just. All I want to say is, like, I just want to spread the good news. Like, go follow Hari Naf on Instagram. Like, literally, that's my recommendation. Um, I just think you won't be disappointed. Yeah, if you want someone, like, fashion-forward, stunningly gorgeous, very smart, um, and someone to look out for to put into your social media rotation, go follow Hari Naf and get, like, pumped for the what's going to be the weirdest iteration of the Barbie expanded universe ever I'm sure <laughs> since like since like whatever my cousin was doing in my childhood cutting off the Barbie's heads of course <laughs> I'm recommending another podcast this month because we're all friends here and we're allowed to listen to multiple shows it's called the loudest girl in the world it's a new podcast as of this recording there's just two episodes it's a show by Lauren Ober who is a DC queer who began to suspect that a lot of the struggles that she's been having in her life, including like difficulty relating to people, having certain meltdowns, interacting with people in a different way than many of her peers might have to do with the fact that she's autistic. And so she didn't receive an autism diagnosis as a kid, which is when it happens for a lot of people and which is the sort of diagnosis industry is sort of set up to um, serve. So she finds it hard but exciting and important to figure out in her 40s that she has autism. And it's actually her girlfriend, Hannah Rosen, who some of you might know from the Slate Mm. podcast universe, who's actually integral to this story because she has a teenage son who's autistic. Lauren spends a lot of time with him. And Hannah's sort of like, you know, Lauren, like all these things, like especially in the pandemic, like you feeling really disrupted with your routine and all these things you've been talking about how when you were a kid, everyone was punishing you for never stopping talking. Like you might be autistic. And Lauren talks in um, the second episode about the experience of coming to realize and accept and first suspect that she might be autistic was actually similar to the series of emotions that she went through when she realized she was gay. Because it's a little Mm. bit of like, I... I want to understand this thing about myself. It's also a little scary. Um, Like, part of me is kind of hoping it's not true. But then actually when it happens, like, it feels a little bit like a relief to have that sort of framework to understand what's happening inside. So it's a very, very funny and sweet and sort of unsparing self-examining look at a very misunderstood developmental disability that I think the podcast could help a lot of people who don't fit the sort of um, reductive stereotype of autism spectrum disorder learn something about themselves. And I highly recommend it. It's called The Loudest Girl in the World from Pushkin Podcasts. Well, summer's coming to an end. The leaves might be changing soon. And that means this episode is also almost over. Um, But please do send us feedback or topic ideas or let us know what you're thinking can write us at outwardpodcast at slate.com, or you can reach out to us via Facebook or Twitter. 
where we're at Slate Outward. Our producer is June Thomas, who throws the fastest curveball in the industry. If you like Outward, please subscribe in your podcast app, tell your friends about it, and rate and review the show so others can find it. The good news is Outward will be back in your feeds on October 19th. Bye, Kastrina. Bye, Brandon. Bye. Great to see you both. Bye. Yeah. I enjoyed returning home. You're always welcome here. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.